Hello, friends, and welcome back to the third, final, and shortest episode of our found footage series. Thus far, we've covered the long road from Hixon, a study of witchcraft, to the groundbreaking 1999 Blair Witch Project, with all the bumps of controversy and meandering film nerd detours along the way. As we enter the early aughts and 2010s, the found footage subgenre takes an interesting and necessary turn. In the 90s, we saw the proliferation of consumer-grade production tools allow filmmakers with no budget to be wildly successful. But with the release of the iPhone in 2007 and the creation of Facebook and Twitter in 2004 and 2006, respectively, we suddenly had not only the tools to create professional films, but unprecedented and immediate access to potential audiences across the globe. But the internet is a fickle creature. We now exist in an attention economy, meaning that your attention as a consumer is a finite resource, so brands are constantly competing against each other to hold your eyes, and therefore your money, for as long as possible. Comparatively, in the 90s, there just wasn't that much happening on the internet. Thus, something like the Blair Witch Project ARG could capture and really hold people's attention. Now the deluge of constant content is just exhausting. So sure, in 2020, you can spend your savings on making a found footage horror movie and throw it online, but that doesn't guarantee that anyone will see it. You can't engineer virality. You can do everything quote-unquote right, but if it doesn't hit at the exact right moment or hit the exact people who need to see and share it, you're kind of screwed. But the stories behind the things, whether it be a meme or a YouTube channel, that against all odds do end up successful and spreadable online, are often interesting and surprising. As we inch closer to the present state of found footage, we see that the element of controversy that helped make previous entries in the subgenre successful, even if accidentally, is now practically a prerequisite if you want anyone to even notice you exist. And truly, what better embodiment of horror is there than being at the whim of an invisible monster with an insatiable hunger for blood, guts, and your precious little eyeballs? I'm your host, Leighton Gray, and this is Deep Cuts. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. They're coming to get you, Barbara. What's your favorite scary movie? Let's start with an entry in the genre that feels like a true staple of mid-aughts horror, found footage or otherwise, paranormal activity. Particularly striking is that unlike a lineage of ghost stories that take place in creaky Victorian mansions or abandoned houses, paranormal activity brought the horror of possession into a setting that the average person could relate to, the suburbs. Add in the level of vulnerability that demonic stuff happening in the most personal space possible, the bedroom is here asleep, it's hard not to relate to how grounded that fear is. The inception of this idea came from director Oren Pelly's own experiences moving into a suburban home with his girlfriend, getting spooked by bumps in the night, and setting up a camera to figure out what was causing the noise. It certainly wasn't a demon, but he decided to pursue the idea as a horror movie, shot as cheaply as possible. So after some renovations, brief casting, and their team of only three crew members, including Pelly, they shot the film in seven days. The shoot cost $15,000. 
Stars Mika Sloat and Katie Featherston were paid $500 each. The casting process, much like the one for The Blair Witch Project, was rigorous in its search for two people who could improvise the entire movie. Let's take a listen to Mika and Katie's audition tape. Hey, babe. $6,000. A what? Hey, check out this camera. Woo. Wait, wait, wait. No, you're kidding me, right? Don't you hey, know what hey, you're doing? Hey, 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 don't be shy. Hey, 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 wait. I want you to be talking about stuff. Here we go. Wait, 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 wait. Did you, did you rent this? Yeah. Yeah? My girlfriend. Oh my God, stop that. Do you think this will work? Are you kidding? Do all my plans work? Flawlessly? Can I see? Can you turn it around? Yeah. Careful. So where are we going to put it? Um, I don't know. Wherever you want to put it. held an initial screening at Screamfest, an independent horror festival hosted at the Chinese Theater in Hollywood, where the filmmakers knew they could create a base audience of hardcore horror fans with a vested interest in the genre. It was very popular with critics and horror fans alike, with the Best Lead Actress Award going to Katie Featherston. Among the audience was film critic and producer Steven Schneider, who shared the film with fellow producer Jason Blum, founder of Blumhouse Productions, who continued to use his influence to spread the word about the film throughout the industry. Much like the exhaustive grassroots-focused ARG marketing that was put into promoting the Blair Witch Project, Pelly took a different approach that would still engage potential viewers. With the buzz from Screamfest already established, they launched an ingenious campaign to find targets for limited release. The teaser trailers for Paranormal Activity featured night vision captures of terrified audiences recoiling in fear, covering their faces and screaming, intercut with a few brief moments from the movie, alongside the tagline, Experience it for yourself plus a call to action to demand it to be released in their town. Something that I think irritates most people about modern horror marketing is that executives feel the pressure to put every single jump scare from the movie in the trailer, thus rendering all of them a bit anticlimactic in practice. And since the unconventional nature of the film worked best with no warning beforehand, the very smart approach to marketing focused not on the film itself, but selling the experience the audience could have watching it. So the Demand It advertising campaign revolved around funneling people towards a website with an embeddable Facebook button that put the onus of distribution in the hands of the public. If people wanted to see what the fuss was about, they could vote for the movie to come to their town and encourage friends to do the same. The budget was so small that the producers had to be careful about every decision. 
So by allowing potential viewers to provide direct, free, valuable market research on their age, location, and interest, they were able to target distribution at areas where they knew they could move tickets. The promise touted by the website was that if 1 million people demanded it, Paranormal Activity would release nationwide and, surprise, they hit that benchmark really fast. It started with seven screenings in the U.S., expanded to 12 more college towns, then 20 more cities, and within a month in October, right before Halloween, it was released nationwide. A decade after the release of The Blair Witch Project, Paranormal Activity put found footage back on the map. It jump-started the Blumhouse Productions approach of giving out small budgets to independent filmmakers en masse and throwing as many things as possible at the wall to see what sticks. And of course, the success led to six more entries in the Paranormal Activity franchise, which all have been financially successful, but increasingly lackluster. I would wager that a lot of the found footage fatigue these days is inspired in part by the lazy follow-ups that not only lack the passion of the initial film, but also are bending over backwards to justify the found footage premise rather than building the story around the approach in the first place. On the topic, Jason Blum himself says, quote, in general, a found footage movie is harder to do than a traditional movie. I think for found footage, the idea has to be an idea that can't be told any other way. So if I'm talking to a director and they say, I can do this found footage or I can do it traditional, I'll always encourage them to do it traditionally. Shooting a movie found footage causes more problems than it solves. It's very practical. It's not a creative thing, end quote. And while I think the oeuvre of films he's produced slightly contradicts this statement, there is a nugget of truth there. The best entries in the genre erupt from pure passion and the medium of found footage being at the core of the idea thematically. Cannibal Holocaust is about the recovery of footage from a documentary crew. Same with Blair Witch. Ghost Watch literally only works as a nighttime BBC investigative special. I'll also argue that Unfriended, which is a good movie, is a story that can only be told through a screen capture of a laptop. You can see how clear this becomes when you look at movies that are, in my opinion, not successful with this, like The Last Broadcast. If you suddenly have to break digesis and switch to shooting traditionally to continue the story once you get to the climax, it probably shouldn't have been found footage in the first place. Even though we all get tired of seeing moments in found footage where the camera is placed in an overly convenient way and everyone's like, uh, who would do that if they're getting murdered? Which, like, true. I would rather suspend my disbelief to buy into that than see the filmmakers just give up on the core premise of their movie. An appreciation of the horror genre requires you to let go of your need to be the smartest person in the room and suspend your disbelief for 90 minutes. I promise you'll have more fun that way. Anyway, back to my point here. As the saying goes, necessity is the mother of invention. Night of the Living Dead, as mentioned in our first episode, was shot on black and white film not as a stylistic choice, but because they couldn't afford color film. The guy who did the opening crawl narration for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was paid not in money, but with a single joint. The iconic poster for John Carpenter's seminal 1982 classic, The Thing, was painted overnight without any press or reference photos and was shipped while the paint was still wet. All that to say, you have to use limitations to your advantage. Found footage is inherently a workaround to the studio system, a way to make a no-budget movie seem big-budget. So why not just attack your creative problems from a different angle instead of taking the easy way out? You might just turn $15,000 into $193.4 million at the box office, which, and I'll say it again because it blows my mind, makes Paranormal Activity the most profitable film ever made, independent or otherwise. And then that spun into a franchise that is worldwide grossed over 890.5 million.
At this point, despite the availability of consumer-grade video production tools making it easier to actually get a film made, there were still only very specific avenues that people could get their films seen. Festivals, knowing the right people, blood packs with Satan, etc. So to work around that, what would happen to found footage if there was suddenly a way for anyone, anywhere, to make their films instantly accessible around the globe? At this juncture, the subgenre needed to either change or die. And so it changed. YouTube was launched on Valentine's Day 2005 with the slogan, Tune In, Hook Up, because at its inception, it was an online dating service with a focus on videos. They were met with a less than enthusiastic response, which led to them turning to Craigslist to pay women $20 to make videos for the site. A tempting offer to be sure, which shockingly no one took them up on. So in the wake of the legendary Janet Jackson, Justin Timberlake Super Bowl nip slip and its lack of availability online, Creators Chad Hurley, Steve Chen, and Joed Kareem saw the blank space on the whiteboard of the internet. What if there was a way for anyone to share videos online in a centralized hub? The dating service element was ditched, and within months, it became one of the fastest growing websites on the internet. And that, my friends, was the nipple that changed the internet forever. The first YouTube video ever uploaded was an 18-second clip posted by Joed Kareem called Me at the Zoo. Here is that legendary and genuinely historic clip. All right, so here we are in front of the uh, elephants. And the cool thing about these guys is that, is that they have really, really, really long um, fronts, and that's that's cool. And that's pretty much all there is to say. In 2006, and for years after, the most viewed video on YouTube was in fact not nipple-related, but a video called Evolution of Dance which, at this point, some of you might not even have been born yet. It's literally just a negative five megapixel video of a dude in an orange crush shirt dancing to a medley of popular songs with all the grace of your best friend's dad tearing it up at a middle school dance. That shit was the height of comedy. Anyway, this is all just trivia. Again, you're a captive audience. I can do this all day. What I'm really getting at here is trying to set the stage for something the internet had never seen, its first web series. On June 16th, 2006, a 16-year-old girl named Bree posted her first vlog to her YouTube channel, Lonely Girl 15. Hi guys, um, so this is my first video blog. Uh, well, I guess a video blog is about me. My name is Bree, I'm 16. Um, I don't really want to tell you where I live because you could like, stalk me. Oh, well, what you need to know about my town is that it's really boring. Like, really boring. Really, really boring. Um, that's probably why I spend so much time on my computer. She sits on her bed in a nondescript bedroom, a hot pink boa dangling from her doorknob. She talks about the YouTubers she likes, how the town she lives in is boring, and the video ends with her dancing around her room and making silly faces. In the next video, she wants to go to a party, but her parents won't let her. For all intents and purposes, Bree seemed like a normal, goofy teenage girl, self-consciously sharing her life with an unseen audience. But of course, behind the scenes, there were three puppet masters holding the strings of Bree's life. Mesh Flinders, Greg Goodfried, and Miles Beckett, who were, respectively, a screenwriter, a former attorney, and a surgical residency dropout. The inception of the idea came from Miles Beckett, who was very plugged into the scene of early YouTube. Virality at the time was a bit of a mystery. The most viewed YouTube videos of 2006 included Laughing Babies, Numa Numa Guy, and a pre-smosh Ian Hecox and Anthony Padilla as literal children lip-syncing to the Pokemon theme song in their bedroom. If you had a webcam and a bit of enthusiasm, you could rack up millions of views. 
Beckett and the other filmmakers paid close attention to the confessional style of popular bloggers. But this all gave him an idea. What if you could use the format of a video blog to tell a narrative, and how long could you get the audience to buy into it? To make it believable, they needed an actor who was naturalistic and an excellent improviser. They quickly found actress Jessica Lee Rose, who was 19 at the time, but passed for 16. The first two videos posted to the Lonely Girl 15 channel were meme video responses to other popular YouTubers, which just added to the veracity and feeling of normalcy of the channel. Then came the vlogs, filmed in Rose's actual bedroom with a bit of set dressing. Due to the wild, wild west nature of YouTube at the time, Lonely Girl 15 stood out for her goofiness and candor, and quickly became one of the most popular channels on YouTube. So this was prior to the days of custom YouTube thumbnails, so the creators figured out a way to game the thumbnail scrubbing algorithm to optimize how to get the most thematically accurate and attention-grabbing images. Now, this is just basic stuff that even your average 12-year-old Minecraft enthusiast can whip up in a pirated version of Photoshop. But back then, this was a huge deal, and it actually worked. They also figured out that comment sections would count responses from the creator as actual discussion, and would cause the videos to trend if they were active there. Plus, it fostered a sense of intimacy that doesn't really feel as possible now with the current nightmare hellscape state of YouTube comments. Remember that? Remember when the description for the video was on the right? Memories. But this could only work for so long. How long could you get a 2006 audience to buy in? As it turns out, about four months. As a clear plotline began to emerge throughout the videos and got progressively creepier, her best friend Daniel totally doesn't have feelings for her or anything. Her strained relationship with her parents becomes more contentious. She hints at her commitment to her mysterious religion and her preparation for a ceremony that the quote-unquote church wants her to do. People began to get suspicious. Journalists and other online sleuths were determined to prove the whole thing was a hoax, and yet again, the controversy only drummed up more hype. Bree's videos could get hundreds of thousands of views within hours. Eventually, some IP trackers found evidence linking Bree's MySpace page to LA-based creative agency, the California Arts Agency, and the jig was finally up. On October 8, 2006, the LA Times posted an article, Mystery Fuels Huge Popularity of Webb's Lonely Girl 15, that blew the whole thing open. News outlets ran with it. Even the New York Times got in on it, to the point that the creators had to hold a press conference to address the entire thing. Despite the furor, the series continued as planned, and eventually, Brie gets killed off. The last we hear of her is this voicemail. Hey guys, it's me. Right now I'm sitting on a rock not too far from the cabin and thinking about all of you and all of this, just everything. This is really hard for me. I've been sitting here trying to figure out what I can say to you that will make you understand why I have to do what I'm about to do. As long as I'm with you guys, you'll never be free. The order isn't gonna let me go, not ever. And if I stay with you, they'll always be out there, waiting and watching. We can't ever really stop them this way. So I've made my decision. I've made the decision that I'm going back and I'm gonna do the ceremony. I want you guys to promise me something. You have to promise me that you'll find the other girls and help them. 
know they're out there and one of them is next. New characters and plot lines were introduced, the series ran for several more years, inspired a few spin-offs, and it actually became the first web series to get product placement. Hershey's Icebreaker's Sour Scum. It's hard to know who to trust. Hey, what is that? What? Icebreaker's Sour Scum. Can I have a piece? <laughs> I would I would love a piece. Um, yes. I only have four left. What do you mean you there's only three of us in the car? Come on. I know, but I Come on. We came all the way out here to pick you up. That's exactly right. So, so okay. uh, besides my mouth okay. right now feels like. Okay. This, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that's so messed up. Oh my god. Whoa, it's sour. Lonely Girl 15 was a landmark moment not only for YouTube, but for the internet in general. Being nearly 15 years out from the first video, the landscape of the internet has changed drastically. Fake news is the norm. Everyone does vlogs, and there are so many web series that I can't keep track of them all. We have sponsored content out the wazoo. Gone is that sense of tight-knit community, support, and trust. And whether we like it or not, existence on the internet means you are flattened into the dreaded capital B brand. As co-creator Flinders said in a semi-recent video, quote, on YouTube now, we wouldn't get away with this for 30 seconds. People would know she's fake immediately. No one will ever trust anyone on YouTube again, end quote. Web Forum Something Awful was the multi-headed broodmother of a bevy of internet phenomena, including Let's Plays, You're the Man Now Dog, Photoshop Battles, 4chan, countless memes like All Your Base Are Belong to Us, at Drill, and not to mention a generation of overly cynical internet denizens. But most relevant to what we're talking about, a now infamous 2009 Photoshop contest thread called, quote, Create Paranormal Images, which is exactly what it says on the tin with users trying to propagate fake paranormal photos to see if any unsuspecting people might find the images and think they're real. It quickly was populated with artifacted edits of UFOs, mystical orbs, ghosts, and the like. In the thread, user Eric Knudsen, under the name Victor Surge, shared two innocuous images of children playing, with an ominous, tall, suited figure looming in the background. He accompanied these with short captions that expanded on the idea, something that would become a hallmark of found creepy images online. One read, We didn't want to go. We didn't want to kill them. But its persistent silence and outstretched arms horrified and comforted us at the same time. And that, my friends, was the birth of the internet's own mythic boogeyman, Slenderman. Ten days after the original Slenderman thread, Something Awful user Troy Wagner made a post in character as Jay Merrick on the essay forums that shared the first entry in the Marble Hornets mythos. The story follows the discovery of a series of disturbing tapes left behind by the friend of the protagonist who was working on a student film. Plot twist, Slenderman, referred to as the operator, shows up and spooky things happen. Much like Lonely Girl 15, this series went on for several years and spawned a spin-off as well as a direct-to-video movie. While active, it was wildly popular. Most of the videos have racked up millions of views and the channel still has over 500,000 subscribers. I think Marble Hornet speaks to the power of modern ARGs. 
Slenderman was created by one guy, sure, but the internet collectively accelerated an urban legend that might only have been spread by word of mouth through generations without it. And the fandom would certainly not exist without the audience that Marble Hornets developed. The collaborative nature of the mythos fueled the fire with thousands of people contributing their own theories and iterations, such as numerous blogs, other horror series like Everyman Hybrid, Tribe 12, The Four Steps, video games like Slenderman Arrival and Slenderman The Seven Pages, and of course, the absolutely dreadful big-budget Slenderman movie, which I think inherently couldn't work as an extension of the story because a big-budget movie removes what's essential to it an amorphous, DIY, collective imagining that the audience builds together. On the other, darker side of the coin, that collective imagining also inspired two nearly fatal stabbings and a house fire that the perpetrators claimed were spurred on by Slenderman. The stabbing of 12-year-old Peyton Lutner especially received a lot of media attention, which of course it did, because the topic is very sensational. Two kids almost stab another to death because a fictional character on the internet told them to, Not to downplay the crime, but that's like the ultimate clickbait, and it was likely the true death knell of the by-then-years-old Slenderman fandom. But to be clear, the Slenderman stabbing is far from the only case of a piece of fiction, quote-unquote, inspiring someone already struggling with mental illness to commit a crime. Mark David Chapman killed John Lennon because of J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. John Hinckley Jr. watched Taxi Driver, became obsessed with Jodie Foster, and shot Reagan to prove his love. Wanting to become Freddy Krueger from Friday the 13th, Daniel Gonzalez went on a killing spree and murdered four people. The Nutcases gang, based out of Oakland, formed their group by playing GTA 3 together and then killing people in the streets much in the same way you can in-game. Jeffrey Dahmer's favorite movie was The Exorcist 3. His crimes were clearly at least partially inspired by it, and he even played a VHS of it for one of his victims. The list truly goes on ad nauseum. There are way more of these than you think there are. The Slenderman stabbings just so happened to be the perfect story that hit at the perfect time. Anyway, at this point, Slenderman has been done to death, but he was an unavoidable specter over internet culture in the 2010s and brought creepypasta to the mainstream. And now for a word from our sponsors. (laughs) Hey guys, um, in light of everything that's been happening, I just wanted to issue a formal apology um, to all the Deep Cuts listeners out there, I messed up, and I'm sorry, and I I had a huge lapse in judgment and in common sense, and I did some really bad things, and I just wanted to be honest um, and open with you about what's been going on. This is really, um, this is really hard for me. So, I thought that a partnership with Toothly would be a good idea. And now I know that was wrong. I, I don't know why I thought working with a company selling questionably real teeth would be okay to do. But they sent me a bunch of free teeth. And how could you say no to that? (laughs) And then I got that call from the FBI about there being evidence in an ongoing case. And that was the worst day of my life. (laughs) And then we found out that the class action lawsuit was happening and it was great. And then they found out that it was being thrown out because of a conflict of interest. 
and then we weren't even gonna get any money. <laughs> and that was the second worst day of my life. And my lawyer says that I can't even say anything further because I'm being subpoenaed for the original disposal of human remains trial. But I just had to speak out because how else are people gonna know that I'm a good person? I am so, so sorry. I I have a lot of growing to do and I need to step up and be better and, and be held accountable for my actions. I'm listening. I'm learning. And um, I'm sorry. I really hope you can um, someday forgive me. Whew. Well, that was all bullshit. Wait, am I still recording? In the year 2017, post-Lonely Girl 15, post-Marble Hornets, how do you innovate on the concept of taking a creepypasta, running with it, and turning it into a found footage ARG without feeling trite? Enter Petscop. All right, so uh, this is just to um, prove to you that I'm not lying about this game that I found. I'm just gonna walk you through everything that I've seen so far. And, uh, obviously it'll be exactly as I described it, because this is it. Using the format of a casual YouTube Let's Play, Petscop is about a guy named Paul who found a weird PS1 video game called Petscop, and is making a playthrough to show to his unnamed friend to prove that it's real. And uh, the first level is over here. I'm just gonna keep going a bit here so you can see that the game is apparently unfinished because there's nothing over here. So, I'm just gonna show you the, the one and only level. This actually is not the interesting part, but I'm just uh, gonna show you, I'm gonna walk you through all this so you can see that this is exactly what I described. Those familiar with the tropes of creepypasta may recognize this setup. Person finds a copy of a popular video game. The video game is haunted. Characters' eyes turn red, and bad things happen. And if you don't copy the story into all of your friends' pages, evil possessed Wario is gonna come to your house and stand at the foot of your bed or whatever the fuck. I'm a Wario. I'm a gonna win. For other examples of this, see Ben Drowned, the NES Godzilla creepypasta, Sonic.exe, and just so many others. The difference here is that unlike a typo-ridden block of text, Petscop takes the idea and fleshes it out. Why read about a haunted video game when you can watch it being played in a format that YouTube viewers typically associate with lighthearted escapism in a way that takes advantage of the viewer's expectations of Let's Plays? While it's convincing, the series wears its unreality on its sleeve. It doesn't do much work to convince the audience it's real, and it doesn't really need to. Petscop has a great soundtrack, really original visuals, a compelling performance by the main character, and the love that went into making a fake video game from the ground up, obviously just at a cosmetic level, is honestly really impressive. It gets the audience involved by posing questions and not answering them, making the whole thing ripe for some ARG action. 
While trying to unravel the mystery behind Petscop, fans clocked that there were multiple references to the case of Candace Newmaker, a 10-year-old girl who was smothered to death during a controversial and now very illegal therapy process called rebirthing. Petscop revolves around the themes of child abuse, neglect, and the pitfalls of the adoption system, so it seems like a natural connection to make on the part of the creator. There was a lot of speculation and controversy over the references to such a grisly case, with the complaints being that it was exploiting a tragedy for shock value. Creator Tony Domenico has since stated that while the references to the Newmaker case were intentional, he now regrets them. That said, while the Fuhrer might have been unintentional, that controversy surely fueled interest in the series. Beyond Petscop, even real video games have gotten in on the found footage approach. Sam Barlow's games Telling Lies and Her Story use a desktop simulator as means for the player to piece together a mystery by searching through archives of police interrogations, on-the-street recordings, and webcam footage. The horror series Outlast is framed from the perspective of an investigative journalist with a camcorder, with a core mechanic revolving around using a night vision camera to see monsters. Indie developer Puppet Combo's The Riverside Incident is a short walking simulator presented through the lens of a camcorder in Puppet Combo's distinctive retro style where, spoiler alert, it's revealed that instead of a murderer coming after you, the player is the murderer. It's pretty cute. With all of these video game examples introducing player agency into a found footage narrative, it emphasizes the inherent voyeurism of the subgenre and adds a level of complicity that I find really interesting. Petscop, Marble Hornets, and Lonely Girl 15 have all pushed the envelope and expanded how we consume found footage in a way that opened a door for other internet-based found footage experiences. We've even seen the format move into stories on Twitter, like comic artist Adam Ellis's Dear David threads, or through Snapchat, like the infamous Reddit post, quote, took a Snapchat for my friends, something in the background has me freaking out. Thoughts? End quote. That particular post is a story from Reddit's hub for creepypasta, r slash no sleep, by user Skinna555. The original poster shares videos he took on Snapchat that seem to have disturbing figures in the background. The saga becomes heavily integrated with the sleuthing of commenters and real-time updates, with the prevailing theory being that OP is dealing with a home invasion and might be in danger. Of course, this was just a really expertly executed creepypasta, but it's again an interesting innovation of combining Reddit and Snapchat and user input to create a story. In parallel, studio productions have pursued internet-based desktop simulator found footage films as well, with movies like The Den, Megan is Missing, The Unfriended Movies, which are good actually, and Searching, which is bad actually, attempting to iterate on the idea. In the sequel to one of my favorite found footage movies, Creep, Creep 2 follows a YouTuber who puts herself in danger to get her channel off the ground. That probably sounds hacky, but in practice, it's very fun. These types of movies generally seem to be pretty hit or miss, in my opinion, because they often come off as people who are out of touch making movies that demonize technology. But that said, if you can look past that, they're really fun. And now with so many film and TV productions suspended due to safety concerns and much of our work and social lives now taking place over Skype and Zoom, we're already starting to see a bit of a resurgence in this style of filmmaking with more desktop simulation movies like Host. Again, this is a true case of necessity being the mother of invention. So before we wrap up this series, I would certainly be remiss if I didn't dedicate some time to recommending great found footage movies for you to watch in one convenient place so you don't have to scrub through these episodes with a notepad. So if you're looking for something to curl up at home and get spooky with, I'm here for you. 
And we're going to go full relaxed fit here, so I'm going to drop the NPR voice. All right, there we go. What's up, YouTube? Let's do it. So I'm going to recommend these based on vibes. Consider me your horror vibes sommelier, uh, so to speak. This is our specials for this evening. I'm going to throw out a disclaimer here that my metric of whether or not a horror movie is good is based on if I had fun watching it. So while a few of these recommendations might not be, you know, the pinnacle of filmmaking, I really think they're worth checking out just because sometimes you want to have a nice time watching something silly. So yeah, here we go. I'll start with my favorites and what I think are the strongest entries in the genre. If you watch anything that I've mentioned throughout this series, if you haven't seen it already, Blair Witch Project, just do it. It's great. And Ghost Watch, absolutely. I think if I had to choose a personal favorite in terms of found footage movies, I would go with the Poughkeepsie tapes because it really is that perfect balance of fucked up and tongue in cheek. And if you like forensic files or any sort of like true crime documentary, it's just like, what if that, but we had actual fucked up video of the murders. I don't know if that's a great pitch. It's very good and you should watch it. And then the director who we talked about in the last episode went on to direct As Above, So Below, which is another super fun found footage movie that's a fun trek through the Paris catacombs with heavy Indiana Jones vibes. Additionally, the 2007 Spanish Rec, which is bracket, R-E-C, bracket, like recording, is probably one of the best, if not the best found footage movies ever. Um, It's a great quarantine watch, considering it takes place with the filmmakers trapped inside of an apartment while a virus infects people and makes them wild out and start killing each other. Actually, now that I say it, it might be a very bad quarantine watch, but it's a great movie. Another one of my favorites is Neroy, The Curse, which takes a really fun approach by being a mockumentary about a guy, a paranormal investigator who goes missing while searching for ghosts. It's super fun. I'm a huge sucker for any sort of ancient demon narrative, and the movie is just chock full of very original and memorable imagery. If you're new to horror, want something that's just a little bit scary or you spook easily, I have a few recommendations for you. These are usually my go-tos when I'm first trying to get friends into horror for the first time, and maybe these will boil the frog for you too. You'll be watching Hostel and Martyrs in no time. Or not. Up to you. Anyway, first up is Creep, which, as mentioned, is a super low-budget movie starring Mark Duplass. It follows a filmmaker answering a Craigslist call for a videographer and venturing to a cabin in the woods to meet an eccentric man who wants him to help make a video for his unborn son because he's dying of cancer. As the day progresses, that story begins to fall apart. Things get creepy. I won't spoil any of it. But Duplass gives such a great performance, and it's a really cute movie. Of course, I call a movie about murder cute. That's just just how I am. So the sequel, Creep 2, follows another videographer getting tangled up with Duplass's character, and it's just as fun as the first. Another great diet horror movie that I'm personally not the biggest fan of, but that most people I know love, is the Australian Lake Mungo. It's a pretty grounded mockumentary about the drowning of a 16-year-old girl and her family struggling with seemingly supernatural occurrences in the wake of her death. It's less concerned with scares and more with creating an unsettling atmosphere, and it's pretty successful with it. If you liked the sorts of hidden background ghosts in Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House, you'll probably like this one a good bit. Another semi-serious mockumentary-turned-horror-style one is The Taking of Deborah Logan, which is meant to be a medical documentary about a woman's struggle with Alzheimer's, but that slowly turns into a possession narrative. The special effects and imagery in this one are just, chef's kiss, and I really do think about them a lot. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, if you want something brutal that's probably going to ruin your night— Obviously, Cannibal Holocaust is a great pick. You also have Megan is Missing, which 
truly is a god-awful desktop simulation exploitation movie that I I won't explicitly recommend. I'm just saying that it sucks, but I really enjoyed it. <laughs> so there you go. As I mentioned a few times in this series, Be My Cat, a film for Anne, is another no-budget, particularly messed up found footage film that really hinges on an excellent performance by the writer, director, and lead actor. The story follows a budding filmmaker who goes to, let's say, extreme lengths to convince Anne Hathaway to star in his debut feature. Are you in the mood for something based on a true story? Ty West's The Sacrament is a genuinely chilling retelling of the Jonestown Massacre, but as told through... I'm not kidding. A team of Vice documentary bros trying to track down one of their sisters who's in a cult. It is really, really horrifying and honestly still scares me on rewatches. Another great one is Zero Day, which is a loose retelling of the Columbine shooting. In fact, people have actually mistakenly shared footage from this movie thinking it was actual footage from Columbine High School. But it's a low-budget, heavily improvised view into the lives of two teens leading up to a shooting with really great performances from the leads. As you'll see over and over again, found footage like really hinges on those performances being naturalistic, which Zero Day just absolutely has in spades. If you want some movies that aren't strictly found footage, but that incorporate heavy found footage elements, I also have a few suggestions. One is the 2012 remake of Maniac, which was a really famous 80s slasher exploitation movie. But this remake stars Elijah Wood as a mannequin-obsessed serial killer who collects women's scalps. It's not found footage, but the whole thing is shot from the POV of the killer, which makes it really feel like a found footage movie in approach. It has a super great synthy soundtrack, and it's generally just a delight to see Elijah Wood's baby face going full unhinged. If you want to feel really film school and really artsy while also getting a little bit of found footage in there, director Michael Haneke has a long-running fascination with found footage. You might recognize the name since he directed Funny Games, The White Ribbon, The Piano Teacher, Amour, you know, like highbrow Oscar-nominated Palme d'Or winning fucked up shit. Needless to say, he's one of my favorite directors. But anyway, his movie Benny's Video is about a movie-obsessed teenager who commits a murder on tape, and Caché, which is easily one of my all-time favorite movies in general, is about a TV presenter whose family is terrorized by strange drawings and long videotapes of their home showing up on their doorstep. They're both pretty dry, and like most of Henneke's stuff, not Really horror movies, but they're really good and they make you feel smart and also kind of gross. So it's a win-win there. You want aliens? We got aliens. Alien abduction incident in Lake County is awesome and highly recommended. Additionally, and this is one of the not actually good but pretty fun movies, The Fourth Kind starring Mia Hovovich is a great silly time. And finally, if you want something less spooky and a bit more on the fun horror comedy side, check out the WNUF Halloween special. It's a very by-the-numbers parody of Ghost Watch, but what's really special about it is that it's mostly commercial breaks that perfectly capture the feeling of watching late-night TV in the 90s, replete with ads for local businesses and as-seen-on-TV products. It's not an incredible movie, but it was made on a budget of $500 and is a pretty fun watch even though it's ultimately underwhelming. For a more traditional horror comedy, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon is a fun riff on Man Bites Dog with a documentary crew following a funny and charming wannabe serial killer. Again, it's not amazing, but it's a fun watch with friends. Honestly, you should just watch Man Bites Dog because that movie was really the blueprint for a lot of this stuff and is a delightful time. All right, that's all I got. There's some others I didn't mention here for time reasons, but if you want to see a written list of all the ones I just talked about and where to watch them, you can visit the link in the description.
Throughout this series, you've probably picked up on some of the common threads that make a found footage film special. Whether it's the semblance of reality that causes controversy, having a lack of budget that forces the filmmakers to come up with creative solutions, hiring actors with strong improv skills, or creating a sprawling ARG, the great entries in the subgenre are marked by pure passion and a strong creative vision. More than anything, the best contributions to found footage are presented through the lens of a handheld camera, not because it's easy, but because these stories couldn't be told in any other way. And despite all the other great entries in the subgenre we've talked about here, the Blair Witch Project still stands out in the cultural consciousness 20 years later. It was brilliant and should be remembered as such. To some, it might just be kids yelling at each other in the woods that inspired decades of other people yelling at each other in different spooky locales, but I hope this story gave some insight into why it's so much more than that and what brought us to that pivotal moment in horror history. What does the future hold for found footage? I truthfully don't really know. But looking at this chronology, and especially the iterations on the genre that the internet has enabled, I think you'll agree that there are exciting and fresh things in store. That's what makes horror fun. It continually morphs with the anxieties of day-to-day existence in a way that allows us to conquer our own fears and have fun doing it. No need to turn around. It's only me. Stop! I'm so fucking sick of this shit! You don't scare me! Sorry, I'm just... I'm not sleeping, and I'm I'm really tired of this. Anyway, sincerely, thank you for joining me on this journey. It was exciting and inspiring to write and spin this yarn, and I'm glad that I got to share it with you. I hope you'll join me next time for another... Patreon.com slash late night.